As we've been studying Romans, one of the things we've been talking about is how relevant what we see in Romans is to what's going on in our culture. As we read the first chapter of Romans, we couldn't hardly help but see something of a mirror held up in Paul's words for what, um, what we've, we see going on in the news and, um, and uh, all around us regularly. And uh, that trend continues as we look today at Romans chapter 2. We're looking at Romans 2, verses 1 through 3. And what I thought about as I was uh, preparing to preach from this text is something else that's going on in our culture that is disturbing um, and distressing and even appalling. Uh, And what I'm thinking of is how normal it has become in our culture for people to swiftly condemn other people. And you've witnessed this on the news, right? All somebody has to do is say one wrong thing, do one wrong thing, tweet one wrong thing, and they get dogpiled almost immediately with very little information, um, very little context, Uh, someone's reputation can be destroyed in a matter of hours. And um, one man said recently, David French um, is a a journalist, writer, who was talking about this recently, and he was talking about how when when this happens, sort of the the dominant thing that that stands out to him is that um, people treat one another without mercy. They show no mercy to people who have cross some sort of cultural boundary um, or who have had some sort of moral failing. There is just no mercy in the way people respond to uh, public figures or sometimes people who aren't even public figures who have some sort, of, some sort of falling out or say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. What is astounding to me about how all this transpires and the way people respond is one, how people seem to lack the honesty to say as they respond to these things, you know, I've got things in my past, in my life that I'm ashamed of too. They pounce on people as though they have never themselves done anything wrong before and it's outrageous that this person did something wrong. No sense of honesty of, you know... I've probably done something, I mean, I've done the same thing before, but I've probably done something similar that if it got put on the news, people would jump all over me too. And it lacks the humility of saying when you have to talk about someone who's done something wrong, failed in some way. People lack the humility to say, but by the grace of God, there go I. Or just more basically, that could be me one day. Because somebody who is unwilling, somebody who is unwilling to show mercy must think that they will never need mercy, which is a foolish thing to think. All of us need mercy for things in our past and will need mercy for things in the future. But everyone who passes judgment on another without mercy will one day be revealed as a hypocrite. Everyone. Because everyone has something in their life, probably multiple things, 
that they need others to show them mercy for. Right? That they need others to forgive in their life. It may not be the exact same sin or evil that they condemn in somebody else, but there is something in all of our lives worthy of condemnation. And to pretend otherwise while condemning others is nothing less than hypocrisy. Right? We even have a saying about this, right? We say, if you point the finger at somebody else, you got three fingers pointing right back at you. Right? Because all, none of us are innocent. None of us are sinless. Now, I want to be quick to say that this does not mean we cannot call attention to the sins of others. It doesn't mean that. We can, and at times we must. The issue is how and why we call out the sins of others and whether we include ourselves in the number of those who deserve judgment and are in need of mercy. In other words, there's a way to speak about somebody else's sin or moral failing that's not hypocritical. Right, Jesus, in the, in the passage we read from Matthew 7 earlier, uh, it's been said that Matthew 7.1 is maybe the most famous verse in our culture now. More famous than John 3.16, where Jesus says, Judge not, lest you be judged. The next thing he says is, don't be trying to pick a speck out of somebody else's eye while you've got you know, a beam of wood in your own eye. And then he says, first, take the beam out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The issue is not ignore the speck in your brother's eye. Say nothing about it because you've had a speck in your eye before too. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, don't try to remove the speck in somebody else's eye, the sin in their life, while you've got a bigger issue of your own that you don't acknowledge and you refuse to deal with. First, deal with your own sin, and then you'll be able to help somebody else who needs help removing sin from their life. So it's not as though we cannot, should not, ever speak to anybody else about their sin. That's not what judge not lest you be judged means. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he is saying is you need to be careful how you do that and when you do that. And that fits right in with what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where he addresses this attitude of hypocrisy, this judging of others without recognizing the judgment that you deserve yourself. So let me read for us <clears throat> Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through through three. Paul says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So let's remind ourselves of what Paul has just said in chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1, Paul has given us a litany of sins that humanity is guilty of. The fundamental one being their rejection of God, our, our rejection of God. Though we know God exists, though we know that He is there, 
Humanity has turned their back on God, refused to glorify Him, refused to thank Him, refused to praise Him as He deserves. And as a result, man has become fools, even though they think they are wise, and God has handed them over to various kinds of sin. And He gives a litany of them in chapter 1. Now Paul says, in light of all of that, I'm turning my attention to another group of people, or at least a group of people who think they're in a different category, and going to address them. Paul is now addressing the people who have listened to Romans chapter 1. And when Paul got to the end of the chapter, they said, That's right, Paul. You tell them. You tell them how guilty they are. You tell them how worthy of God's judgment you are. they are. You tell them how messed up they are. That's exactly right. That's exactly what they need to hear. That's exactly what I've been thinking. Paul, I'm on your side. And Paul turns around and says, No, you're not. You don't, you don't understand. You are not in the position that you think you are. You, he says, have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. So every one of you who are judging the people I've been talking about in chapter 1 because you think you're not included, you also have no excuse. I remember Paul said in in chapter 1, verse 20, that men have no excuse for their rejection of God because God has revealed Himself in creation. They have no excuse. They cannot claim ignorance of God's existence. They have no excuse for refusing and failing to worship and honor God. Now Paul says... In verse 1, there's another category of people who have no excuse. It's those who sit in judgment upon other people. Right? They are in precisely the same position as those he was talking about in chapter 1. Now why are they without excuse before God? Why is this group have no excuse before God who is our Judge. Well, Aquinas summarizes this so well. Let me read you what he says, and then we'll, we'll unpack it as we go through these verses. He says, Paul rejects the causes for excuse, and he gives two. First, ignorance, and second, innocence. Ignorance is excluded by the very act of judging. Then, when he says, for you do the same, he rejects the other excuse, namely, Innocence. In other words, there are two excuses you could try to give why you shouldn't be judged by God. One of them is to say, God, I didn't know. And he says, you can't say you didn't know because you were judging other people. You were saying they deserved condemnation, so you know what the rules are. The other one is innocence. God, you can't judge me because I'm not guilty. And Paul will remove that excuse as well when he says that they are guilty just like the others. So they have no excuse for their judging. Why? Because judging implies a knowledge of what is blameworthy. Judging somebody else, saying someone is worthy of condemnation, means that you feel like you know the rules. You know what's right and wrong. You know what ought to be condemned and and not condemned. You, by setting yourself up as a judge and condemning other people, have said, I know what's right and I know what's wrong. I know what's worthy of judgment and what is not. So they cannot claim ignorance. 
They cannot claim they didn't know the rules. They cannot claim they did not know what was right and what was wrong, what kinds of things deserve condemnation and what things don't. These are the kind of people, those who judge others, pass judgment on other people in this way, are typically um, religious or moral people. Right, Paul, could, Paul probably has mainly in mind here the Jewish people. He's going to bring in the Jews specifically later in chapter 2, but here he probably has mainly in mind the Jews who would be listening to Paul in Romans chapter 1, condemning people who they would see mainly as Gentiles, committing idolatry and all these things. <coughs> Excuse me. And they would say, yes, the Gentiles are guilty. Yes, the Gentiles are worthy of condemnation. Excuse me, this is why I brought tea. (coughs) Goodness. I feel like the fall of the, the spring is an excellent illustration of Genesis 1 through 3. This beautiful creation that God has given us. It's green outside, the weather is pleasant, and it's trying to kill me. <clears throat> happens every year. Okay. <clears throat> so. Jews looking at chapter 1 saying, you're talking about the Gentiles, and Paul, we're right there with you, they're guilty. He could also be talking about certain moral Gentiles. There were Gentiles who saw the folly of idolatry, who um, would speak against some of the, the immorality and stuff that would have been dominant in pagan culture. And so could, you could have some Gentiles too saying, yeah, you're right, that's, that's what I've been saying. I've been saying the same thing, Paul. These guys are acting out of sync with how we've been created, and all these kinds of things. So the kind of person who sits in judgment on other people is usually a moral or religious person. And I'm using religion there in the negative sense, right? There is a positive sense. I'm using it in the negative sense, right? Um, whenever, <clears throat> whenever people think about themselves... Primarily in terms of their works, their accomplishments, their good deeds, the things that they do, the things that make them better than other people. Those are the kind of people who look down on others in judgment and condemnation. Right? <clears throat> and, and here's what I want you to get about this. Because this is important for us as individuals and for us as a church. Whenever the law replaces the gospel as how we understand ourselves, right, and how we look at our church and how we look at other people. Whenever the law replaces the gospel in a church or an individual, this attitude of judgment is a sure sign of that tragic exchange. In other words, when, when people sit in judgment on others like this, look at them, look what they're wearing. You don't come to church like that. Look, look at the way they act. Whenever you, whenever you sit in judgment on other people and you're, you're always, you're just, you're negative, negative, negative about what other people are doing or saying or acting. Not, not 
lovingly trying to come alongside them and say, you don't need to act that way, you don't need to live that way, you don't need to do that thing. I'm talking about negative, critical, looking down on you judgment. What that is a sign of is that the gospel is not shaping your mind and your heart, at least in that moment. You are thinking of that person primarily in terms of their sin and their deserving of judgment rather than thinking of that person as, a, as someone who is in need of God's grace. And you are thinking of yourself as someone who is doing all the right things and therefore is worthy of being esteemed because you don't do the bad things that other person is doing. That, that's not a gospel way to think about yourself or about somebody else. Right? If you thought, as we were listening to chapter 1, if you thought, Paul's not talking about me. He's talking about other people. He's talking about those guys out there. Then in verse 1, he's talking about you. You have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. Why do you have no excuse? Because, or for, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I'm going to say, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The reason why I'm judging those people in chapter 1 is precisely because I don't do the same things that they do. I sit on, in front of my TV or open my newspaper or whatever, and I shake my head at the people who do those things because I don't do those things. Really. If you roundly condemn the sexually immoral, is it because you've never had a lustful thought? Never had a wandering eye? As Jesus says that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you condemn the murderer mercilessly, have you never sought to destroy someone with cutting words, gossip, or slander, or something just cruel and mean to their face? If you condemn people who are boastful and arrogant, have you never been proud of your humility? I'm not equating those sins. They're not the same, right? It's worse to commit adultery in fact than to commit adultery in your heart, but both are serious offenses against God. No one is righteous, Paul's going to say in chapter 3. Not one. No one does what is good. No one is sinless except for Jesus. And so when you talk about, think about, act toward other people as though they are sinners and you are righteous, you have missed something important. You too are a sinner worthy of God's judgment in need of God's mercy. That's what Paul is saying. You cannot claim ignorance because you've been judging others. And you cannot claim innocence because there's no one who isn't guilty. Not only do we have no excuse, Paul says, if we act that way in verse 1, he also says we're in trouble because God's judgment is true and just in verse 2. He says, we know that the judgment of God 
rightly falls on those who practice such things. In other words, God's judgment against sinners is just. And the person who's been judging them knows that. That's why he's been judging them. He's looking in down on these people in judgment because he knows God doesn't like that. God says that's wrong. God says you shouldn't do that, shouldn't act that way, shouldn't think that way, shouldn't talk that way, shouldn't do those things. That's right. You're right when you think that. God does justly judge those who do such things. The problem is the person who's doing the judging does those things too. And so that's why Paul can say that you have condemned yourself in verse 1 when you judge others in this way. Here's how Calvin summarizes what Paul is doing here. He says, The design of Paul is to shake off from hypocrites their self-complacencies, that they may not think that they can really gain anything, though they be applauded by the world, and though they regard themselves guiltless, for a far different trial awaits them in heaven. So everybody around you might think you're really moral. Everybody around you might think you're a really good person. You might think you're a really good person. I don't need grace. I don't need mercy and forgiveness. I'm already on God's side against all those guys. No, you need mercy and grace and forgiveness just as much as them. Because if you know yourself at all, and if you will be honest with yourself, you know that you too have fallen short of the standard of God's perfect righteousness. And that spot on your soul might not look very dark when you set it next to the soul of your neighbor, who's maybe a little darker than you. But when that spot on your soul has to appear before the burning purity of the holiness of God, it's going to look real dark. It's going to look real dark. So you need to get that figured out now. That's why Paul is speaking to this person in this way now, to shake them out of their lethargy and say, I'm talking about you too. You too are under the wrath of God. You too are in danger of God's judgment. You too are in need of God's grace. If your sense of justice is aroused by the sins of others, don't you think God's sense of justice is aroused by your sin too? Just because it's smaller or less obvious than somebody else's, you think God's not going to notice? He does notice, he does know, and your sin is serious. Even if it does not appear to you as serious as somebody else's. So then Paul asks the million dollar question in verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think... You who judge others for doing the same kinds of things that you do, do you think God is going to let you off the hook? I mean, how how are you supposed to answer that question? The answer is no. The answer is no. We know God is a just judge. We know that He's holy and righteous. We know that He cannot overlook sin just because. And so if you have taken sides against sinners and condemned them, 
And yet it turns out that you too are a sinner. What's going on? You've been, you've been shooting holes in the boat that you're standing in. Trying to sink other people, all the while sinking yourself right along with them. You're not going to escape this thing just because you think you're on the side of the right. You too are guilty. You too stand in need of God's grace and mercy. You are not going to escape unless you avail yourself of the one means of escape that God has provided. And this takes us right back to verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. This is why Paul says this is good news. This is why he's unashamed of this gospel. This is why he's so eager to travel all the way to Rome and then hopefully all the way over to Spain to tell people about this. Because whether you are a libertine living it up in sin or whether you are moral and religious and self-righteous and think you're one of the good guys and everybody else is on the wrong side, no matter which camp you're in, Paul says, I've got a gospel for you. It's the only one. God has made a way for unrighteous people to be made righteous. By faith in Christ, anyone who trusts in Christ will be given the gift of God's righteousness. That's justification. Your sins are wiped out and God declares you righteous in His sight. Why? Because Jesus paid the righteous penalty for your sin on the cross, even though He lived a righteous life. So that if you confess your sin, you turn to Jesus, you trust in Him, then your sins are blotted out by the perfect death of Jesus, and Jesus' perfectly righteous life gets credited to your account, and God says, you I now count righteous because you belong to my righteous Son. That's the only way, the only way for anyone to be right with God. So do not neglect the way of escape. And if you have escaped, don't think about, talk about, treat other people as though you never needed an escape. As though you never needed a Savior. As though you never needed grace and mercy. When you have to point out somebody else's sin, do it with the humility that says, I've been there too, and I'd still be there if it wasn't for Jesus. Maybe not in your exact same spot, but in the same trouble you're in. I have the honesty to say, there was a time where I had to cry out for mercy because I was a desperately lost sinner. Have the humility to say, if God does not keep me from sin, I'll be right back where I was before and maybe in a worse position. There is nothing about me that makes me better than you. The only thing that's different about me is what God has done for me. So can I tell you what He did? And can I pray that He'll do it for you? Because the only way for any of us to be saved, the only way for any of us to be right with God, the only way for any of us to be acceptable to him, to get to be in fellowship with him, is if we find forgiveness in Christ. The just, the righteous, 
the Bible says, will live by faith. That's the only place that life is to be found. It's by faith in Christ. Let's pray.